0: We believe better patient experiences begin with a commitment to every aspect of healthcare. This is Full Circle Healthcare, a MedSphere podcast. Hello and welcome to the Full Circle Healthcare Podcast. I'm Tyler Kern, and today on the show, we're discussing what COVID-19 has revealed about healthcare and some of the big lessons the industry can learn from this time. And joining me here on the podcast today is David McFarland. He's the Marketing Communications Manager at MedSphere. David, thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, happy to talk to you today and uh, obviously this is a a a big and layered conversation that we're going to have today covering a lot of different topics because there's so much that the industry can learn from what COVID-19 has taught us and uh, it has been a lot of things. So, um let's start off here maybe just a, at the most basic level. David, how did the healthcare system respond to the COVID-19 fan- pandemic from your perspective?
1: Um Wow, that's a that's a great question and it's <laughs> it's a hard one to cover uh in brief. <laughs> um I think everyone's perception is that the healthcare res- system responded as best it could basically. I think um you know, at this point in the pandemic, the criticism has been largely of the uh government and um the political system much more so than um than the healthcare system or the hospital system. They're probably or they're without doubt, there's probably room for some criticism. We're certainly going to tend towards not doing that right now, because we're still neck deep in uh, treating uh, COVID patients. But when things have calmed down a little bit, there will be an opportunity to look at things that didn't go well. I mean, right off the top, you would say that making sure there was significant supplies for a pandemic, so everyone's protected, that hasn't gone real well. Um, And everybody's aware of it and getting the necessary supplies. Um, was difficult and while the federal government has been blamed mostly uh, for that situation there will be an opportunity for hospitals to say what could we have done about it that would have made this much less critical
0: so maybe that, that supply chain aspect of things was one of the uh, maybe one of the bigger weaknesses that was exposed. Were there any other maybe weaknesses right off the bat, just a, of the system in general, not necessarily criticizing people or response or anything like that, but how was the system maybe put under stress by the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Well, financially, the system went into cardiac arrest pretty rapidly. Um, when you've got a system that's based primarily on fee for service, and hospitals and health systems make most of their money by providing those services, then there's going to be a real problem when they suddenly can't provide those services or charge for them, because hospitals have become a place people don't want to go to even more so than they may have been previously. Um, And they don't necessarily feel safe. So you can't really, without a lot of planning and a lot of um, organization, welcome people into a hospital for an elective procedure if they feel like they're um if they feel like their life is threatened by um by going to the hospital basically so i mean right off the bat there financially we saw how the system is predicated on doing business a particular way and as soon as doing it that way uh was obviated then there's a real problem
0: that's a great point, you know, and, and one of the ways I, I suppose that that healthcare evolved and maybe maneuvered a little bit was utilizing telehealth a little bit more. Now, this is something that we saw as as a, maybe a small trend or a growing trend before the pandemic, but has that taken off during this time? It feels like that's one of those things that, that feels almost like a non-brain, a no-brainer of sorts. Just uh, to say, okay, if people aren't willing to, to come into healthcare facilities, let's you know utilize technology to go to them. Talk to me a little bit about he- uh, telehealth and how it was utilized during COVID nineteen.
1: Well, um, yeah, it's just. Ex- I mean, to your initial question, has it grown? It's just exploded. I mean, um, you know, we're talking about thousands of percentage points in increase. Um, People were aware of Zoom. People used Skype, um, tools like that before there was a pandemic, but then it, you know, it just blew up. So it was growing anyway. To your point, yes, it was growing anyway because it met certain. Um, it helped healthcare overcome certain challenges that existed prior to the pandemic. But obviously, once there was a pandemic and you needed to see people who had to be seen by doctors, um, it provided an opportunity to still. Have those visits to evaluate patient health things of that nature um a lot of questions about telehealth remain Um, and there are different ways to go with it in the discussion so insurance isn't necessarily set up yet to determine how they're going to pay for it Um, i don't think there's a standardized payment model um there's not a standardized model for how states will regulate it so you cross state lines and things change significantly um It was looking like something that could help rural health care a lot because people could go into a a rural hospital and still have access via telehealth to specialists in a a large medical center in an urban area. Um, And so moving forward, telehealth may provide a way for small rural hospitals to have a relationship with a large medical center to maintain their financial viability and still provide quality care for rural residents. but those other th- questions are outstanding. Um, How's insurance gonna handle it? Um, oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention is, um, since everything is obviously internet-based and broadband is not proliferated that widely in rural areas, what do you do if you just don't have reliable technology in you know, farm country, basically? Um, and then if you start talking about broadband, s- sorry, I don't mean to just like take this down the rabbit hole. If you start talking about broadband you could talk about a whole bunch of other benefits that aren't necessarily healthcare related um, to rural areas. So, did I muddy the waters enough there to make that <laughs> confusing?
0: Well, you you did bring up rural healthcare, and that is something that we wanted to talk about. Um, and I, I guess there are so many different uh, branches and so many different avenues we could take into rural healthcare. But I, I suppose let's. We'll focus in on on the impact of COVID-19 on rural health care. Is, is rural health care in a better place than it was before COVID-19 because of the explosion of telehealth? Or do the mitigating factors for, for, for telemedicine, like what you mentioned, broadband access, things along those lines, do those maybe, uh, I, I suppose, like I said, mitigate the, the benefits of telehealth to the point where eh, rural health care is basically in the same spot it was before?
1: Uh, That's going to be a great question, and I don't think we're going to know the answer to it until later in in next year. And I'm just spitballing, um, you know, a time period, really, because I'm uh, not a decision maker and I can't say that I know. So um, I say the potential for it to help rural health care is significant. It's substantial uh, because the technology is proliferated, excuse me, rapidly in order to deal with the pandemic, and that can't help but benefit telehealth. The federal government is also now more aware of the fact that broadband in rural areas is not reliable um, and that that impacts the economies of those areas, it impacts the healthcare of those areas since we become a technological and an internet-based society in many ways. Um, The revenue uh, challenges still exist though for those rural hospitals and there's going to have to be um, a wholesale effort to modify the way that they bring in money, basically, so that they can be financially viable, and that we have not seen yet.
0: That's a good point, and and even as we were discussing elective procedures earlier, that's that's another you know a uh, thing that I, I suppose that that we can discuss as far as this goes. But what should healthcare providers be looking at as different? Revenue models and different ways of of doing healthcare, for lack of a better term, what what types of things should they be looking at as maybe alternative methods to how things are right now? Because as you mentioned, people weren't getting elective procedures, and so hospitals were losing money, going out of business. Rural healthcare there's there's still questions around um, revenue there as well. And so, what alternative ways of doing this exist that uh, that maybe healthcare providers are looking at?
1: That's obviously a timely, it's always been a timely question in healthcare: care. Uh, how are we going to pay for it? Um, and the industry itself has been moving for a while now away from the fee-for-service model because it's become really obvious how it doesn't um, facilitate holding costs down and providing quality care. You, it's been difficult to do both. But um, it's like, you know, it's turning the Titanic. It's um, something that happens gradually, and it's something that really has to happen Um, across the industry. It will be difficult for just hospitals and health system to do it themselves. They can. They could go to a different payment model, but there are certainly complications involved with that on the payer side. Um, And so it's just, you know, as businesses, they're probably not going to go in that direction. So um, one of the alternatives is paying um, hospitals, clinics, um, to care for care for patients. Basically, you get a lump sum of money for this particular patient based on that patient's risk, risk factors. And then as a provider, your task is to care for that patient. Um, it's often called capitation. I'm sure there are um, other terms to describe it. Um, and I don't know um, of any evidence that actually the industry has gone more towards that during the pandemic. I think probably not because the priorities have been elsewhere. But that would be... Um, a shift in the payment model that puts the onus on providers to take, you know, a sum of money and then manage that money effectively and taking care of people, and that, in theory, would strip a lot of waste out of the system. And we know that the waste in the system is into the billions of dollars, but that's an enormously complex challenge.
0: That is a huge challenge, and and you know, as we were talking about broadband earlier, it kind of reminded me of the fact that. Um, that there are a lot of things that play into the health of the public, of the general public, and I'm sure public health professionals obviously know this better than anybody. But there are plenty of factors that factor into the overall health of a society that aren't just uh, the the quality of healthcare and aren't just um, you know the payment models and the insurance and things like that. There's social determinants of health that also have a, a, a large. Uh, I guess, say in the overall health and well-being of people. And that is something that has to be taken into account too. So you take this wide angle lens and there's just so many factors that factor into um, the response to COVID-19 and what it did to the healthcare industry. I'm, I'm, I'm curious just maybe how public health professionals are taking all of this in and trying to distill it down to find actionable items that can be improved on for the future.
1: Well, um, I love that phrase, social determinants of health, um, just because it's uh, a far more broader uh, perspective on what impacts people's health and illness, basically. Um, so COVID has just illustrated what a lot of, like you said, what public health professionals knew anyway. Um, so there's a you know there's a problem. Everything, most everything you do in your life actually may have, and even in a a circular way come back and impact your health. Um there was an article in the AMA, AMA journal of ethics, ethics um estimating that almost half of health outcomes are determined by socioeconomic factors so really not having anything to do with healthcare and medicine specifically. So I mean what are we talking about if, especially in the pandemic if you're um a frontline worker of any kind meaning you have a direct direct interaction with the public there's a good chance that you may have lost your job or that your hours were significantly reduced maybe your health insurance was tied to that job and it may be gone now so what do you do in those instances um, what do you do if um, public transportation was cut considerably because there's no ridership and you can't get to work assuming your job still exists or you can't get to a medical appointment well that's not directly healthcare related but it certainly does impact um, a person's health and their longevity and if you start to look at it i mean you know public housing and um strength of the community and crime rate and all of these things i mean in the city that i live in crime has gone up during the pandemic because there are fewer people on the streets and People are desperate. So, I mean, it's a web of interrelated factors that ultimately impact individual lives. And you don't get a clear picture of how that works unless you take all of these contributing factors um, into the overall calculus.
0: So it's a big web of, uh, of complicated factors that obviously all need to be taken into account. And one of the biggest topics that gets discussed anytime you're talking about healthcare is health insurance, right? And everybody seems to have an opinion about it. It's more of a, a political debate uh, very often than it is about actual health care. Um, but it seems that everyone has an opinion on this, right? So, uh, what has the pandemic shown us, or has there been anything that we've learned about health insurance from COVID 19 and from the way that this has all played out here in this country?
1: Yeah. That's a, I mean, unfortunately, the discussion of health insurance in this country has become maybe more political than it is anything else. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have an opinion on it. I'm sure you have an opinion (laughs) on it. We could do a straw poll of two people and then publish a study, but that wouldn't tell us very much. Um, We leave a lot of people uncovered, basically, by health insurance. And we live in a system where your surprise health, surprise billing can actually... Bring some sort of, you know, a rain of financial terror down on your household. Um, you may have to uh, declare personal bankruptcy. All those things in our healthcare system can happen. And in a lot of other social democracies, they can't happen. So, um, and it's still happening during COVID. I mean, uh, the cost for testing I and mean, the cost for treatment still ranges wildly. You've got, I mean, if you wanted to get a test, uh, because you're going to travel for Christmas, even though um, Anthony Fauci suggests we don't, uh, you could pay anywhere from um, $75 for a rapid test if you went to Walgreens. I think I'm, I'm I'm just kind of guessing here. Upward to a private clinic that might charge you $600, and maybe you can pay that. But if you um, you know if you have symptoms, then you need the test more than someone who just wants to travel for Christmas. So. I mean, if you lived in a system that actually provide coverage, provided coverage and provided uh, payments to cover all those tests, then you'd have a better idea of who tests positive. Then you could do the contact tracing. Uh, then you could actually tell people to quarantine. Um, you'd be better able to control the spread of the virus because people have been necessarily tested and contact tracing has been performed. And if everyone were insured, that would be less of a concern.
0: That's a great point, you know. And, and one of the things we we started off talking about, uh, and I want to circle back to it uh, from this conversation, was talking about uh, PPE and things like that that seemed in short supply from the very beginning, um, and maybe some of the uh, the strain that was placed on the supply chain when it came to supplies and things along those lines. Um, what sorts of things can be done about that moving forward? What have you learned about the supply supply chain? Is it simply just keep more things on hand because there's the chance and, in fact, maybe a likelihood at this point now that there will be another pandemic similar to what we're going through right now? Is it simply that, just stockpile more stuff? Or is it uh, that there need to be more contingency plans around how do we get supplies nationwide? How do we make sure that every place has what it needs the next time something like this comes around?
1: Yeah, another good and um, complex question. I, we haven't had a simple question in this conversation. Sorry, yet, no, no
0: softballs today. <laughs> no softballs
1: today. Okay, um, I think you have to ask the supply chain question on two levels. So, what does the what does the hospital do? Um, they've had trouble getting enough sufficient masks um, to protect their people. I mean, they you know most of the hospitals in the country, at least for a while, if not now, had their Uh, clinicians reusing masks sometimes for a really long time that seems unsanitary and unwise Mm -hmm. Um, so what does that individual hospital do Um, there are certainly software programs that can help them uh, be on top of their ordering and their supply chain a little bit better they use a bunch of different methodologies and that track effectively what comes in and goes out in a uh, real-time methodology But to your question, I mean, if that hospital doesn't have confidence that what they need is going to be available when they order it, then I think their tendency might be to stockpile it, Um, which is kind of unfortunate because they don't really want to, they don't want to have warehouses full of stuff that they have to maintain and pay for. They want to use a just-in-time ordering methodology so that they have confidence that what they need can be available almost immediately when they order it. Um, And that makes it a lot more complex. So... There will be other pandemics. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The question will be how prepared are we for those and will we have learned something from this one that changes the way supplies are ordered? Um, There was a lot of, back in um, the fall, uh, sorry, back in the spring, when this started, there was some news coverage of the fact that there was exactly one mask manufacturer left in the United States and that he, contacted the federal government and said, I'll turn out masks as fast as I possibly can. I just need a contract, um, which wasn't necessarily forthcoming. So um, what do you do when you've got one domestic mask manufacturer and all the rest of the masks come from mostly China, Mm -hmm. who is in the midst of its own pandemic? Um, So those are larger industry questions. Does the federal government... Um, provide some sort of financial stimulus for domestic manufacturers to start making masks here in the US and other PPE as well. Um, Those are harder economic questions that we still have yet to answer. It seems to me that the answer to those questions is fairly obvious and the benefits to the country are also fairly obvious. But um, most societies, most cultures have a tendency to forget a lot of the lessons learned the further you get away from an actual emergency, we'll have to see.
0: That's a great point. That is a great point. That uh, that we do tend to uh, those lessons tend to fade, I suppose, as as time goes by. And that's a that's an excellent point. I want to uh, the uh, last question I have. Uh, Focuses less on healthcare and more of end of, uh, end of life care, and that's because nursing homes and assisted living facilities were hit especially hard by the pandemic. Does that necessitate a conversation about the ways that that we can evolve these types of facilities moving forward?
1: Uh, yeah, I think we're going to have um, a national conversation about that. In all honesty, but initially, the area of concern I think I'm I'm most curious about is. How it's going to impact individual familial decisions, so I think it would be very very difficult for a family that's that has an elderly parent in assisted living facilities to not consider now you know whether or not they want to leave them there i mean and, and moving forward if you had a parent who was going to be in need of support um, in their later years, you'd probably have to think a little bit differently about. Maybe putting them in, in a, a facility or maybe not, or doing a little bit more research on exactly how prepared that facility is for something like this pandemic. Uh, we've, um, I think we may have drafted this earlier, but may, if not, we know that this pandemic's not going to be the last one. Um, we're hopefully going to, this is going to prepare us for pandemics in the future um, that may be similar or worse. We don't know. But now it's a situation where This might become part of our governing healthcare philosophy in a lot of different areas, and assisted living facilities are just one of those. On a broader scale, there have been questions for a long time about this industry and how it's regulated, um, and the qualifications of the individuals who work there, what the demands of the owners are, how much they get paid, all those things factor into questions about the quality of care that some facilities provide. So I would expect that those kind of conversations would happen on both the familial and the broader industry level, and then probably also maybe at the federal government level when you start considering regulation of some type. And what previously wasn't necessarily a decision that factored in a virus or a pandemic will probably, that'll be included, I think, in conversations and thought processes moving forward.
0: That's a good point, and it feels like we, uh as a culture as a country maybe can't even fully agree on the fact that we that we have failed uh it feels like uh, you can have conversations <laughs> with uh with any number of people and they'll tell you that we've done an amazing job and so Um, that makes these conversations all the more difficult. And uh, David, I feel like you've done a great job navigating these topics today. And so David McFarland, Marketing Communications Manager at MedSphere. David, thank you so much for joining me today and talking a little bit more about healthcare as it's related to COVID-19 and uh, everything that goes along with that.
1: Thanks, Tyler. I enjoyed talking to you.
0: I enjoyed it as well. And everyone, I, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Full Circle Healthcare Podcast. We appreciate it very much. We uh, we enjoyed bringing it to you. So make sure you stay uh, subscribed there on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you're not already subscribed, make sure you hit that button to stay up to date with the latest in healthcare and everything going on. And of course, we'll be back soon with more episodes of the podcast. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.